tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 15 for March of 2017. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave. And in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about the season finales as our main discussion topic. And shows we'll be discussing include Legion on FX, which began on February 8th and is just passing its halfway mark in its eight-episode run. And The Hundred, which began its fourth season on February 1st and is five episodes into its season. And then we will have a very, very special interview that one of my favorites that we've had, an interview with Ruth Bradley of Humans on AMC, and a British import that started on February 13th here in the States. Of course, it's long been over on Channel 4 in the UK, but we're enjoying it as it does its uh, run here in, in the US. So a great show in store for you. Uh, we are talking about series finales, season and series finales, that is in our discussion topic today, which is, if you think about it, more of a May topic. But I guess we'll have to see how the shows that we're watching now measure up to the standards that we're establishing in today's episode. Well, well, Mike, you know, you say that, but then look at how many shows have what I guess in the past would be deemed a half season of 10 or 13 episodes. And we've got shows that begin in January and February. So, you know, the, the TV world is not what it once was. That's right. Season finales all throughout the year. But before we get into that, in case you need to avoid spoilers by skipping certain topics, here are the time codes for today's discussions. Season finale discussion. 220. Legion. 1931. The Hundred. 3715. Humans interview. 5346. Okay, and we're talking about season finales. What do we want to see? What do we enjoy about season finales? And like you said, because of the structure of TV these days, season finales can happen throughout the year. But even the landscape has changed for having season finales of a certain type, not the least of which you can get the social media feedback along the way. And a lot of times more and more networks are letting shows know if it is their final season when they get renewed sometimes, which allows them to have a satisfying series finale. And that's another thing that has changed things a lot. Firefly. Exactly. Dark Angel. Yeah, but we could go down the list. Yeah, Firefly had a great season finale, if only there had been more. (laughs) Yeah, although they did get the chance to have a movie to really tie things up. But that's true. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, we we got a lot to talk about with these. and, And, you know, I wish... I could remember every season finale I've ever seen that that really impacted me. And and obviously, there are even a lot of great shows that are non-genre that, uh, you know, one's got to get mentioned, and and I'll be the one to bring it up. But for the most part, we're staying within the field of genre television. That's true. And in our recent memory. So you're right. It's whatever springs to mind immediately. Now, there are definitely going to be ones that Dave and I have forgotten about that might fall into these categories. And we'd love to hear from you, especially on the Facebook group, but on on Twitter, if you want as well, or you can email sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com to share with us your favorites. I saw a couple of articles in my research, especially ones that talked about some of the craziest uh, series finales of all time. But I did also see some big categories lining up and we're going to basically Share three each, like we have been doing with the Super 6 topic this year. 
of season finales that use a particular quality to really ramp up the tension and get us salivating for the following season's premiere. So Dave, why don't you start with the ones that actually sometimes are abused and we would like to see them done correctly. (laughs) Well, for, you know, for me, I guess we'll go ahead and call it life in the balance. And I get the idea of putting one of the major characters in jeopardy at the end of a season and probably not so much at the end of a series, but, I don't really like finales that leave a life and death card on the table and that we've got to then wait three, four, five, you know, in in some cases even longer to find out what happened. And I know for you, you were telling me about your experience with Star Trek Next Generation. And, you know, I'm not that familiar with the show. I certainly didn't get to season three. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's the first thing that popped into mind. I'm sure there are tons of other examples, but Star Trek The Next Generation Season 3 happened to end with one of the best season finales in general, but it put Captain Picard's life on the line because the Borg showed up in that season, one of the greatest Star Trek villains that there have been, and he was converted into one of the mindless automatons. Locutus of Borg was his name. And it was a great plot twist, but you really had to wait a long time to see the resolution to that. And in fact, at the time, I had not been caught up on Star Trek and I was able to watch, I think it was somebody that had taped the finale and we got to go directly into the season premiere. And I remember remarking to my friend that I was so glad I didn't have to wait all summer to find out how it was resolved. But that's an example of how it's done correctly. I'm sure you're actually bringing it up, though, as something that can also be very negative if it keeps you in suspense in a bad way. Right. And I wonder if showrunners are changing their approach now that they're so willing in so many cases to kill off a main character. I mean, certainly we're going to talk about The 100 tonight and certainly one of its main characters for all intents and purposes, should be dead. Let's just leave it at that. (laughs) Yeah, and the 100 will not only come up in our uh, show discussions, but also should show up in some of these finales because the 100 has had some great season finales. But I'll go and, and share my first one, and that is that you can take a character and at the end of the season, you have that character switch from good to bad or bad to good And usually they've always been that. You just didn't know it. And they've revealed themselves to be playing for the other team. And it came to mind when we were coming up with this discussion, because at the time when we first decided on the topic, Timeless Season 1 had just ended. And uh, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen Timeless Season 1, skip ahead maybe 30 seconds, hit that forward button a little bit. Lucy's mother, it turns out, is not who she seems. And maybe I'll just leave it at that. But, you know, sometimes you can have someone that you think has been in support of the main character the whole time. And it turns out they're part of the grand conspiracy, which of course, Timeless does have in the form of Rittenhouse. Right. And that was one of my categories. I mean, it's not one of my three now. I was calling it the unexpected twist. And, you know, certainly Grant Ward in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Would, would fit into that category, but it's that whole identity reveal, not necessarily a secret identity, but I guess in a way it is. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it, some of these are going to bleed into each other, I think, because of that. But I like that you have something that is also a more broad topic, the unexpected twist. This is specifically a character switching from one side to the other. It doesn't happen too often, but I do like when they use that as long as it's not out of nowhere. Like you should be able to look back at the season preceding the finale and be able to see that it was coming or there was a reason for them to be acting in the character's best interest until they were forced to reveal that they were bad or vice versa. Right. Now, one that I am still a little bit torn as to whether I like it or I'm not going to say hate it, but the idea that a show brings a resolution to its ongoing story arc to a close at the end of the season, even though we know full well the show's coming back and and the show that immediately comes to mind for me is the librarians. And that's what they've done with their first two seasons is that they wrapped it up. Now, to be fair at those points, it, it wasn't, entirely clear that they were going to be renewed and they weren't so final an ending that we couldn't move on and and of course that's what we've done the end of season three was was not quite as final but it still did wrap things up nicely so you know i i like the idea of a plot resolution but on the other hand i love the ongoing story arcs that go across seasons and don't necessarily wrap up until the series finale well, I'll tell you what happens a lot of times, because I love the season-long arc idea, and I think that really came into play for me when I was watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and they would have one big bad per season. And usually you could count on them wrapping it up to a certain degree in the season finale. So there is that, but usually the idea of a plot resolution for a season usually leaves one or two threads that will carry over into the new arc but they do have a sense of resolution. Sometimes it's like you said, they're not sure if they're going to be renewed. I remember that was certainly the case with Defiance season two, which both acted as a potential opening or or resolution to that plot and moving on to something completely different for season three, had there been one. But a lot of people were saying if the show is canceled and it was, this could act as a series finale as well. So in that sense, the plot resolution idea can be a good thing. Sure. Not just for not just for ongoing series, but for ending series as well. Well, I've got uh, the secret identity revealed. I guess I stole that one from you to a certain extent. You kind of gave it a different term. But when I say secret identity revealed, I'm differentiating that from the good, bad character switch. Because I remember fondly the season finale of Westworld season one, which just happened this year, where... Uh, secret identity, a character that had no name, the man in black, had his identity revealed at the end of season one. And that was a big part of the enjoyment, even along the way where people were predicting that might be the case. But to see it come to fruition, that it actually was who we thought it was, or maybe some people who were denying it all along (laughs) saw that, yes, indeed, the secret identity that people were surmising was actually the case. So I like the secret identity revealed. It's used very sparingly in television. I think Westworld did a good job of it. But moving into season two, what will Westworld necessarily do with something like that? And in that sense, it might actually be a plot resolution as well. Right. And they played with his identity all season long. So I I thought it was really handled well. And I guess to a certain extent, he's also got his life in the balance at the end. I mean, not necessarily life or death, but maybe. Maybe. 
Right. So the, like I said, these are crossing over quite a bit, but it's good because each one has a different use, not only for genre television in general, but specifically whether it's a conspiracy plot that we're dealing with or a grand mystery. You know, a lot of times if the mystery is there, that's where the really good cliffhangers can come into play. Right. Now, my last category, I'm just going to call it the WTF. <laughs> And the three that I'm going to mention are all series finales, not not season finales. One that I alluded to earlier in the podcast is non-genre, and that's, of course, The Sopranos. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Now, Lost, the series finale. Oh, God, you're picking all the controversial ones. Well, you know, it's funny because I said to my students today, we're, we're talking about deeper meaning in a piece of literature and, and that until the author comes out and tells me this is what it means it's open to interpretation and that, that i would certainly think that the great creative minds don't want to tell us what it means they want us to figure <laughs> it out so when i look at the the ending of lost i still am like what the heck did i just see but i like it i i, I like the fact that it might take me weeks to really come to grips with what that meant and to a lesser extent, Battlestar Galactica's ending. <laughs> I knew I knew that had to be included in that list. <laughs> now, I don't think it's as difficult to interpret as lost, but it's not clear cut. That's for sure. And that's one of the reasons I do really love it. Yeah, that's what's interesting. And I think the audience may know if you've been following our podcasts for a while, you know that Dave and I actually liked the endings for Lost and Battlestar Galactica. And we may be in the minority there, but yeah, the WTF moment can be a good thing, even though some people are very frustrated by it. But it's interesting that you bring that up as your third and final topic, because my favorite one, I saved the best for last, is the complete paradigm shift. And there are so many examples of this where it can be kind of a WTF moment, but I think these probably are less controversial than the ones you named, not only because they're not series finales, these are season finales that I brought up for my examples, but I think these are among the favorites for genre fans in general. Now, three of the shows that I want to mention as examples are canceled, so there's no chance of spoilers, but the first one I'll start off with is our show topic today, The 100. Season 2 one of the best seasons of the series by far, I think it what, what's what brought a lot of latecomers, including me, to the show. And the season two finale was, of course, the one where genocide, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, was committed on the people of Mount Weather. And that just put everything on its head. And I think maybe that could cross over into your WTF category as well. Well, sure. And it laid bear the emotional toll it ended up taking on well one character in particular but but really a lot of characters and and it just moved the story in again i don't want to say a completely different direction but that's one of the great things about the hundred is that i don't really think it's fair to say it reinvents itself each season but it comes darn close that's true but there are some shows that I think are more so in that light. And some of them took whatever the twist was and ran with it, and others didn't. So let me bring up a couple of examples here to illustrate what I mean by that. So Fringe, season two finale, it was called Over There. 
it revealed what ended up becoming one of the defining elements of the show, which is the parallel universe. And Olivia had faux Olivia, her counterpart in the other universe. They pretty much took that season finale and ran with it. <laughs> but before that, it wasn't that way. So that's that's one example of a complete paradigm shift that they continued with. But similarly, X-Files season four, the finale entitled Gethsemane, in which Mulder questioned the validity of everything that he had thought up until then, especially with regard to his sister having been abducted. And they didn't run with that, but it really kind of messed with your head, the season four finale of X-Files, because of the fact that you started to wonder if this whole thing was just something dreamed up by Mulder. <laughs> yeah. Now, did you leave me the last one to talk about on purpose? Because I, I, I was afraid you were going to mention it because for me, a current show that is now you know in between seasons that brought about a total paradigm shift is The Good Place starring Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. Now, All right. <laughs> have you gotten to the end? I have, yeah. I was okay. a latecomer to the finale, but I did eventually watch it, yes. And where they're going to go next season, because they had these little mini shifts along the way, but then we get to the end, and it, it was just handled so brilliantly. And, it, and it's a show, it's only a half an hour. If you're not watching it, it's just a great show. It, it, it's genre, I think, to be fair, but it's got a, a very light touch. You could even argue it is a flat-out comedy. Right. It does have some supernatural bits to it that could fit it into the genre field. So I think genre fans would enjoy it if they haven't checked it out. But yeah, I think we should actually end with that example. It's a lot better. I was going to bring up Continuum Season 2, where Carlos goes off with Betty and and Liberate, and, and a lot of people die that end up getting resurrected by a time reset. That could be a paradigm shift as well, but I actually like your Good Place example a little bit better. But I think we must agree then, Dave that the best season finales of them all fall into that final category, don't you think? I do think that, yes. The fact that we could come up with that many examples shows that those are our favorites, I think. Right. And I mean, look, I want to think about things. I don't want to have all my questions answered at the end. I know some people do, and I know some people feel cheated when they don't get those answers. And I guess I would just say to you, don't feel cheated. That's right. I think it it's like reading a book that has a lack of resolution sometimes. You want to leave something up to the reader's imagination, and I think people aren't necessarily used to that with television. But sometimes you need that. Yeah. I've heard people still do read books. <laughs> Not right. me, of course, and I haven't seen you reading any lately. No, too busy. Isn't that crazy? Uh, I regret that so much, especially since I haven't finished the Expanse series, which I've definitely been enjoying along with the show. But speaking of shows that leave a lot to your imagination and let the viewers (laughs) come to their own conclusions, I'm going to be talking about, as my show topic, Legion on FX, which I was very excited to come across because I wasn't keeping my eye on it that closely because, you know, Dave and I do talk about Marvel's agents of shield uh, for another podcast that we do, but for the most part, we're not people who follow the Marvel cinematic universe or comics shows in general. And I wasn't expecting to like this, but I heard so many good things about it. And when I checked it out, wow, was I impressed and I should have known because 
This comes from the creator of Fargo, Noah Hawley, who's basically become one of the it crowd in, in Hollywood or at least television because he just has such a great cinematic style to his television shows kind of messes with your mind quite a bit. And Legion certainly has done that. It airs on Wednesdays at 10 o'clock on FX. And for those who don't know, it's based on a Marvel comic in the X-Men universe in which a man named David Haller is the main character in the comics. He's the son of professor Charles Xavier whose psionic powers cause him to have multiple personalities and psychological problems, which are similar to that in the show, but they don't go with that particular angle in the show. But the multiple personality idea and the voices that he hears is where the name of the show comes into play. Legion, which of course is the name of, I believe it's like a demon or something in the Bible. I looked it up. It was in Mark chapter five, verse nine, where he says, my name is Legion for we are many. And I'm actually kind of wondering, Dave, if that's going to come into play in this series where the voices might be part of the powers that he manifests. Right now we're four episodes in at this point. Is it 10 or 12 or is it even fewer? It's uh, eight. It's yeah, it's just nearing its halfway mark. And I think there's a lot of questions still unresolved. What was interesting to me, having seen Fargo and enjoyed that show quite a bit is that two of the actors in the series, Gene Smart, who plays Melanie here in Legion and Rachel Keller, who plays Sid are, you know, like mother and daughter, I believe in Fargo season two. So I guess Noah Hawley brought over some of his favorite actors. Right now. One thing I do like are the names. Are you familiar with Sid Barrett? Yeah, (laughs) that was an interesting choice. The lead singer of Pink Floyd. Yes. Is that right? Right. Well, he was the original. <laughs> the original leader of Pink Floyd that had his own psychological issues, didn't he? <laughs> he did. But the other characters, actors that I recognized also, Dan Stevens plays David Haller. He was a favorite of mine on Downton Abbey before they killed him off. And then Aubrey Plaza of Parks and Recreation playing a very uncharacteristic role here as Lenny, his friend in the psych ward that ends up being sort of a questionable reality type of personality herself. (laughs) Well, you know, and and for me, I've always said that the first thing that has to grab me are the characters slash actors that, that I've got to feel some sort of a connection. I've got to like them. And for Legion, even though the storyline, I'm still grappling with a lot of what's going on. and, And to a certain extent, a lot of what's not going on, but I like everybody in it. Aubrey Plaza is just Amazing. She she's just one of my favorite characters in the show and, and and I wish we would see more of her. Yeah, she's great and I'm really enjoying her portrayal. And of course, in this show what we know so far is that David Haller is a telepath, a telekinetic, possibly even a teleporter who has been told that he's been schizophrenic all his life and he realizes finds out that that hasn't been the case that it's actually a manifestation of powers and that he's been stifled somehow. He's friends with Lenny in the psych ward and meets Sid as a newcomer to clockwork psychiatric facility. Sid is interesting too, because she is also in the psych ward because of having powers. Her powers are that if she is touched and we of course don't find this out right away, she just seems like someone who is touch phobic. (laughs) But if you do touch her, you switch bodies with her for a few hours And that seems like kind of a power that might not be useful, but as the episodes progress, 
it very much comes in handy and gets them in trouble at the same time. So this is not a character that appeared in the comics, but what a great addition she is to the dynamic because of course the two of them, Sid and David have a romance of the mind, which is almost heightened by the fact that they can't touch. Right. And it's just so bittersweet because they're, they're both characters that as you point out that they've been told their entire lives that there's something that they turn out not to be, you know, he's not schizophrenic. Now, maybe by the APA definition, he is, <laughs> but it's, it's really these powers that he had no way of understanding what they were. And it depends on what parts of his background that were being shown are real or not that may determine how crazy or not he is because the fact that a lot of his memories seem to be giving false information to those that are exploring them does put into question <laughs> his sanity to a certain extent. But of course he does escape and is taught or treated one might say at a facility called Summerland, which is basically there to help mutants learn to use their gifts. And it's a great little precursor to uh, I guess Professor X's X-Men, his school for gifted youth as well. So it's a great little nod to the X-Men universe because, of course, FX is a Fox-owned property and they own the whole mutant idea, which is something we haven't been able to see on Netflix or ABC or anything that, that's owned by other members of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But we do have a lot of questions as to whether or not David may be the most powerful mutant ever. And one of the characters even says, I think it's Sid says, if you learn to control your power, you're going to be a world-class badass." One of my favorite lines. <laughs> well, you know, and that's, I guess, one of my issues with the show to this point that I get that they're going deep into the characters. And in this case, David, his past, I guess, to try to figure out how he got to this point. I, I mean, what what is it they're really looking for? That's true. The whole idea that not only Dr. Melanie Bird, who is in charge of this facility, but also one of the other people that helps the group, Patonomy, who is able to navigate memories. These are powers that seem almost geared specifically from the narrative standpoint to help us explore David's past. But you're right. To what end? Right. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned that this is apparently a facility that will enable him to learn to use his powers. As Sid says, if you ever learn to control it, you're going to be one badass dude. But when are we going to get to that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you and I are both having those particular misgivings because of episode four, which just aired last week. And episode five is about to come. Hopefully we'll get some answers there. But yeah, when you get to the halfway mark, the fact that a lot of that is still unknown is a little frustrating, especially since in the background you have this division idea, division three. We're not sure if they're part of the government. I assume they are a secret organization. The idea that there are divisions implies that there are more than just division three, but this particular one seems to be coming after David and people like him and wanting to exploit his powers or put him down because he's too powerful and Summerland is there to protect him. But what really strikes me is that they've taken Amy, his sister, as bait to try and draw David out. And he wants to go rescue her, but the people at Summerland won't let him do that until he gets a full grasp on his powers because they don't want him to go off half-cocked. 
But at the same time, he's getting a lot of arguments, including from the spirit version of Lenny (laughs) played by Aubrey Plaza to go and get your sister. That's really important. And, And she's not being mistreated per se, but she's also not being treated with kid gloves either. So it is interesting that they're taking the time to do all this background work just to awaken his powers, which seems kind of a dangerous way to go about it. And kind of long-winded like you said <laughs> right and, and don't get me wrong i i really enjoy this show and I, oh, i'm me certainly too. Me too. i'm certainly sticking with it and perhaps it's my inability to be patient but i guess it's also that it's only eight episodes how long am i going to have to wait for season two if in fact there is a season two that's right because there's the mention that a war is coming so kind of would like to see something moving in that direction because it possibly could be between mutants and the government who seeks to control or eliminate them or different groups of mutants. Cause I think division three has the one guy with the funky eye who seems to maybe have some powers of his own. But one of the characters that I like, I mentioned Patonomy who navigates memories and is trying to get at some of the ones that David is hiding from the group. But one of the people I really like is Carrie who is two people in one body. And one of the things we learn as the series goes on is that the female version of Carrie only ages when she's outside of the body, which explains why she's much younger than the male version of Carrie. And I thought that was really cool that they included that little detail. Well, yeah. And the fact that it's like, when do I get to hit somebody? Come on. (laughs) When does the fighting start? She loves the action. Yeah. It reminds me of Jane and Firefly. Right. They are very much different parts of the same mind. The female carry is all muscle and brawn and the male carry who is actually the co-founder of Summerland along with Melanie's husband is the scientist. So they definitely have that going in an interesting way. And speaking of Oliver, Melanie's husband, he's in some kind of comatose state as well where David visits him. That's an interesting interlude that I would love to get more detail about because it seems like he's trapped in the astral plane that David goes to when he's having kind of uh, trouble confronting some of his memories. But again, the fact that we have so many telepaths and so much exploration of the mind, it gets to be a little bit into the psychological when some of us just want to see some action. Not all the time, but sometimes. All right. And there is a certain amount of quirkiness that's pretty attractive as well. Like, Like you mentioned, Oliver being trapped in the astral plane, but it's almost shown to us as the coffee machine, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, the machine is actually just his recorded voice that Melanie likes to play to remember her husband as he once was. But I think that's just supposed to be a detail that shows that, you know, he was one of the founders of the, of the group, but I can't wait to see where that goes because Oliver seems to have been trapped in an earlier time period. He asks, Uh, David, is free love still a thing out there in the real world? And speaking of which, uh, you know, we have some questions that have to be brought up. Where are we going to go from here? And that's one of them. What the heck time period are we in? I mean, Oliver was trapped possibly in the 60s. But even some of the fashion that we see in the real world of the show seems to be a bit dated, don't you think? I I do, but it's still, it doesn't really give us anything to grab hold of and say definitively it's approximately this 
decade or half decade. Yeah. Well, the one thing I think, and I'm surmising that it's in the 70s somewhere, is because it predates the Professor X idea, although this isn't necessarily playing with that same universe. They're kind of doing their own thing. But also mutants aren't known, whereas in the X-Men universe, X-Men are known to everyone. So this is before everyone finds out about uh, what's going on with the mutants and the evolution of mankind. So that's a question. Then, of course, if we have a Division Three as our enemy, we heard mention of Division One that might actually want David killed. But what are the other divisions all about if there's a Division Three? That's one of my big questions. <laughs> and then David himself, all the different memories that he's fabricating. He made up a boyhood dog, for example, named King, but the family had no dog. What's the deal with that? And there's a lot of instances like that where you're wondering, why would David make that up? Another one is Lenny, who I think was truly someone that was there with him at the psych hospital. In his memory was also someone he took drugs with, but it turns out that's Benny, a male. And somehow in his memories that Patonomy was replaying, we see it as Lenny. So these are the kinds of things that really can mess you up when you're trying to keep track of it all. And then what's the deal with the devil? Oh, the devil with the yellow eyes. Yeah, that's a big one, of course. Is that an actual entity? Because it almost seems like he escapes the astral plane once he visits Oliver. And uh, is that something that is informing his powers? Is it something that's exploiting his powers in some way? Something he's let loose? I mean, there's a lot of big, big question marks here. And one of them actually too, Dave, is this children's book, The World's Angriest Boy in the World. Is that something his parents actually read to him? Because <laughs> what a disturbing book. Well, I, I was going to say, I, I can't believe that his parents read that to him. So it, it, it's clearly something he's invented in his subconscious to deal with some trauma and, and i guess that's what we're trying to find out as as we keep digging into his past right because you know we know a little bit about his parents but not much we knew his father was an astronomer and one of the key questions that comes out in some of the psychiatric sessions and also sid is very curious about what it means is the phrase what did the stars say and how that plays into his powers or the discovery of his powers. And of course the big one, the big one is what happened in the kitchen. This key memory when he was fighting with his girlfriend, probably over the situation with the drugs and him stealing from his psychiatrist, something to that effect where his powers manifested in a big way. And he practically blew up all the cabinets and the contents of those cabinets in the kitchen one day. So why is he covering up that memory in particular and if he is able to find out more about that moment, is that going to help him control his powers a little bit better? Because I can only think that's the direction they're headed. Right, because they want to know what happened to set you off. But ironically, for me, that's a scene that provides as much clarity as anything in the in the episode. It's like, oh, well, of course, he got too emotional, he got too angry, whatever it was, and his powers manifested and... I mean, so what are we going to see down the line that he has to get angry to use his powers? Well, that's going to only work for so long. So eventually he's going to have to learn to use them as all superheroes do at some point. Exactly. It always seems to start that way, like Firestarter, 
with the anger activating it. But, you know, we've got other things that are happening leading into episode five this week, such as the fact that we got to see the eyes power where he wasn't seeming to be harmed by bullets that were being fired at him. That was kind of cool, even though he did become a victim of the switcheroo as Sid and he touched, which actually caused more problems than it solved. But that's a nice twist leading into that. Maybe will shake things up a bit leading into the second half of the series, but I'm very much looking forward to finishing that out. I actually am happy that it's only eight episodes. Sometimes every once in a while you need a series that's 10 episodes or less. Don't you think? <laughs> I do. Absolutely. And, and you know, there are a lot of good ones out there. So yeah, I just enjoyed uh, into the badlands, which I'll be talking about an opportunity for this podcast at the end with regard to that show. That one's only six episodes. So uh, Legion on FX, check it out. If you haven't, you can catch up. There's plenty of time. It's on at 10 o'clock on Wednesdays on FX. All right. Well, one show that does have more than eight episodes is, <laughs> of course, The 100 on the CW, and it airs Wednesday nights at nine o'clock. They are in the eh, getting close to the middle of season four. But again, if you're a follower of the show, you know, season three was not without its controversy as a much beloved, although arguably not necessarily a major character was killed. And that is, of course, Commander Lexa. And, you know, season four, I think, has moved past the controversy, but it hasn't really done anything to soften its hard edges it still takes as many risks as it's always taken it still puts its characters in peril and to a certain extent again there i go saying it reinvents itself but it's taking its story arcs in different directions and just when you say well where are they going to go from here there's somewhere new to go they figure out how to do it yeah i was a little bit had a little bit of trepidation after the whole Lexa problem last season and the alley plotline, which I wasn't a huge fan of last season, but I think season four has not only overcome it, but actually returned a little bit to its roots and what really made it work as they confront the new dangers of worldwide nuclear plant meltdown and radiation poisoning everywhere. So I definitely think that they've brought it back full circle and, brought a lot of the characters we love back to the forefront that were suffering in season three. Right. And obviously the show begins by the hundred teenage criminals being sent to earth to check out whether or not the radiation has subsided enough for them to live. And because they were raised in space, they have a certain immunity to the radiation. Now, again, it's been 97 years or whatever it has been. So certainly a lot of it has subsided, but now to return to the radiation threat, but from a different angle that the nuclear plants worldwide are basically failing. They were meant to be kept up. They were meant to have people service them, replace parts that wore out and of course, there's nobody around to do that. Yeah, it's like it was meant to last 100 years, which is supposed to sound like a positive. But guess what? It's been 100 years and now things are failing. Right. Now, uh, one of the things that we know heading into season four is that before her death, Lexa had brokered an agreement to bring Sky Crew in as the 13th clan. And since 
her death, Sky Crew is standing on shaky ground within the alliance because anytime a leader dies or is killed, there are a lot of other individuals vying for power. And when you are the outsider who has just been let in, which is the case with Sky Crew, they're they certainly looking over their shoulders the entire way. But the other thing that, that I really enjoy about this show is that they, for the most part, they seem to understand that there is a symbiotic relationship, that they really do need each other. It's just that the grounders, you know, they don't come to that quite as easily as Sky Crew. Well, in fact, I don't think that they would have survived if it weren't for Roan taking a magnanimous view, at least at first, <laughs> towards the inclusion of Sky Crew as the 13th clan. Because not only is there no commander, you know, because of the flame not being passed along to the next Nightblood, even if you concede that Ice Nation has a claim to the throne, they would almost certainly be the type that would eject Sky Crew out of hand right away. But I think it's only Prince Rome that prevents that from happening. Right, because they are, to a certain extent, the other. And you mentioned the Nightblood, and, and certainly we learn a lot at the end of Season 3 and into Season 4 about the flame. And we find out that the primary Nightblood that's available that should, by all accounts become the next commander luna doesn't want anything to do with it right that that she and her people are living out on i mean what is that an oil rig some kind of island yeah Yeah. (laughs) i think it must be an old derelict oil rig and you know clark offers her the flame she turns it down and of course at the time clark is stunned well i love how they forced the issue here in season four by making luna's people among the first to suffer from the radiation poisoning that's starting to happen with the meltdown, which is actually coming even quicker than they thought. I think they thought they had six months, but it turns out they only have two. And Luna not only is forced to come back into the same circles as the people who were imploring her to take the flame, but also the first one to show a possibility of overcoming the problems of the radiation. Right. Now, you you know, two months, that's a few believe raven's math but uh, yeah (laughs) but there are so many good lines and one where clark offers roan a chance to survive the end of the world and he's such a fascinating character because he is steeped in grounder mythology grounder lore grounder religion and understands that the majority of his people see him as maybe a traitor is too strong a word, but that his willingness to even talk to Clark seems a betrayal of sorts. So for him to be able to see the big picture and be strong enough to make that decision is just really compelling. Well, I think a big part of the success of the first few episodes of season four were in having that secret and having certain people know about it and try and steer things in the direction of cooperation, despite all the odds against it. And so I think they held on to that just long enough before the truth was revealed, at least to most of Sky Crew, about the real survivability that's even possible with with what's going on. But yeah, kudos to Roan for seeing the big picture, like you said. 
Right. Now, another thing we know, and and I think we've known this already, we had it reestablished, and I love Bellamy, but stop making decisions, Bellamy. You, (laughs) You seem to always make the wrong ones. And along with Jasper, who somebody needs to get violent with Jasper or lock him up somewhere or, you know, we, we certainly know that, but I still enjoy Jasper just living life to the fullest while he still can. <laughs> well, and, and, and I get the argument that Jasper is their conscience and that he asks the questions that no one wants to ask, but he asks them in such a way, he acts in such a way that he doesn't see any picture except what's directly in front of his nose. And that's just not the way they need to go about things if they're going to survive, not only the coming radiation, but getting along with all the other clans. So I don't know what we can do to rein him in, but we need to. And, you know, we mentioned about the grounders and sky crew perhaps being immune to the radiation, at least the lower levels the search for somewhere safe to go, can they outrun the radiation? I guess that's the question. And we do get that really quick glimpse of, I think it was Australia. Is that where it was? Or it was somewhere in the, oh no, it was the pyramids. The pyramids, right. <laughs> when, when we saw that individual just get melted, the flesh melts away from the bones. So we know it's coming, but at the end, what we do know is that Luna's night blood likely holds the key to surviving the coming radiation. And in the most recent episode, uh, you know, the work has begun to try to come up with a vaccine of sorts. And, you know, we see Clark's mother and I forget the guy that's her assistant, his name, but they're working on it in that lab that they just happened to find. <laughs> Well, that lab was a really cool twist. I was very happy because we were talking about, I think, even in our discussions in a previous episode, that the 100 might have more Mount Weathers out there. And this is kind of like that. But, you know, they started off with the idea of sheltering in their own crashed ships and using the the radiation shielding there, there just wasn't enough room for everybody. So I kind of like that they played with that idea and then completely demolished it <laughs> as a possibility. Right. But when you get down to it, why wouldn't there be other Mount Weathers? Right. Or even just the bunker that they went to for the religious fanatic to see if that was viable. Right. And it turned out not to be. I mean, that's the kind of thing that might be plenty of examples like that out there. Right. Now, one of the things we always like to talk about in terms of shows that are in season two or beyond is how this particular season is different. And we've mentioned Roan several times, but he has a new number two named Echo and she's pretty badass. But what I really love is that she's set up as a foil to Octavia, who as a character has really transformed herself. And we really thought she had gone down that rabbit hole never to return But it does seem as if Octavia is back. But when we mentioned earlier, one of the characters likely should be dead. It was that physical standoff between Echo and Octavia. It was more than just a fight. So uh, don't get me wrong that that it was just that. But of course, after taking a sword to the uh, 
midsection and then pushed off a cliff that, I don't know, Michael, that, that looked like it had to be 100 feet. Into a very shallow body of water. <laughs> and when you say shallow, we're talking like a couple inches of water, maybe. Right. That was surprising. So yeah, that particular twist, we're not quite sure how we feel about it yet. Obviously, we're very happy to have Octavia around, and that's the important part. <laughs> yes. Now, our world has kind of expanded. We spent more time in Polis. Uh, we get more of a feel as to how the clans interact with each other. Yeah, we actually got some names like Broadleaf and Flow Crew, I think their name was. So, yeah, it's nice to see a broader look at the grounders. Right. And we had this idea that a grounder is a grounder is a grounder. And of course, that's not the case at all, that there are these petty conflicts going on and maybe some not so petty conflicts. But regardless, on the one hand, in many respects, it's not that different. Certainly relationships have developed for the good and for the bad. But I mentioned Bellamy making decisions and living with the consequences. And that's perhaps the best part of this show for me is that these characters who are so young, they should not be making these kinds of decisions. They should not be placed in these kinds of situations. Yet they are, they rise to the task, but then they have to live with the consequences and really see the impact it has on them. And and again, that's why I have such a problem with Jasper, because he just doesn't seem to get that. Well, you say that, but one of my favorite parts of both of the things you just mentioned, Bellamy and Clark, which of course, you know, the Bellark shippers have come back to the forefront because of what's going on between their leadership styles. But the making of the list is a big one for me. Clark was agonizing over that. But who was it? Jasper and also Monty, of course, bringing that out as an unnecessary pain that they went through as leaders and shining the light on what they should have been doing all along, trusting that the people would still band together if they knew the truth. So I do think people like Jasper and Monty are necessary to kind of bring Bellamy and Clark back to reality in some ways. Now, to be fair, Clark didn't want to make the list. It was Raven that insisted she do it. That's true. Again, that said, you know, you have to plan for the inevitable. You have to plan for the unpopular. And I don't know. I I, I think that if you waited until they were up against it. Well, do you think the lottery is a good alternative? Well, I think it is. Now that we are where we are, now that <laughs> yeah. now that Monty and Jasper have outed Clark and the list, I, I think it was a great move. Is it a move by Jaha to retake command, or are the wounds from his rule still too fresh that nobody would stand for it? Now, maybe I'm being naive, but I think it's more of just his natural leadership coming out and that he's not actually maneuvering for anything. It's just happening that way, but I could be wrong. Okay. Now, the other amazing thing in season four is that Raven has what appears to be some of Allie's code in her brain and therefore access to information and abilities that she didn't have before. And these abilities may, in fact, enable her to save everybody. And, and, you know, she is with Clark's mother as they're working on the cure, if you will. And it's as if her brain has gone from being able to operate at a 10 to 12% or whatever it is that, that a normal human being operates to close to full on capacity. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. And I'm so glad that Raven has taken this particular turn because she's such a great character that was already heroic in season three, but is even upping her game. But again, they love to make it into a sacrifice as well, not power that comes without consequences. Right. Now, what's your take on Murphy? How many times are we going to watch him bail (laughs) on his Sky Crew comrades? How many times is Murphy going to be all about me? I guess we've just grown used to it. I guess. And you know, it's funny because obviously we know him from our continuum days and, and his character was equally as fascinating there. Though I think to be fair, he ended up a pretty good guy, pretty honorable guy. But Imori, who I really like, but I feel like she needs to beat some sense into him at some point. Well, she's not much better. <laughs> she's well, got some moral moral gray area as well. Well, she does, but she's not Sky Crew. Yeah. You know what I mean? These are his people. And granted, there have been ups and downs, no question. Most of it, his own doing. You know, you, you could certainly argue and make the case that he got what he deserved. But then every once in a while, he'll pull a move like stealing the radiation medicine to give to the little kid, you know? <laughs> right, right. But at the end of the day, Clark gives the flame to Roan. Are we going to have a new commander? I don't know. It certainly would be under different circumstances. But yeah, I'd, it's very difficult to predict what's going to be happening in season four, much more so than it was in season three, I think. And I think that's a good thing. Absolutely. All right, well, let's go ahead and move on to a show that Dave and I have very much been enjoying. In fact, it was originally going to be one of the topics uh, instead of Legion for this discussion, but then we got an opportunity to interview someone from the show, and so it took that spot on the podcast, and I couldn't be happier with the result. And for those who don't know, the show Humans originally aired on Britain's Channel 4 and has subsequently been brought to the United States on AMC. I guess it's halfway finished now and, and airing episode five, in fact, the very night that we're recording this podcast. But we spoke with Ruth Bradley, who plays D.I. Karen Voss on the show. And this interview actually does have some spoilers for season one, because the character of Karen Voss has a huge, huge reveal in season one that was just so well done that could not have been predicted by anyone. So I don't want to necessarily reveal that here. But there are some spoilers if you need to skip this one. But I definitely recommend checking out Humans, uh, not just for Ruth Bradley's character, but certainly she's a big part of of the show's success. So we will be referring to also some events in the first four episodes of season two. So not too spoilery, but just so you know. So here's our discussion with Ruth Bradley about the first few episodes of Humans season two. The subject of this month's interview segment is Ruth Bradley, one of the stars of the British import Humans, which airs on AMC here in the States. You may have also seen her on the most recent season of the Gillian Anderson vehicle, The Fall, and she also received high praise for her comedic turn in the 2012 creature feature, Grabbers. In Humans, she plays D.I. Karen Voss, a very unique character who had one of the best reveals of the show's first season. Welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Ruth Bradley. Thank you. Now, Karen held all of the power at the end of season one, it seemed like. She could have prevented David Elster's programming from going beyond the immediate family, so to speak. And she wanted her own existence to end as well. Mm -hmm. So was Mia's persuasion otherwise temporary? And does Karen carry this fatalistic view into season two? 
Um, I think Mia's persuasive thing there at the end of season one was basically the, the idea of being loved for Karen, that, that there was there was another route. It didn't have to all end uh, in this dark hole, in this black hole that she had found herself in. So I think we find her in season two indefinitely a more positive place for the moment. Uh, yeah, so she's definitely trying something new and is far more open in season two than she was in season one. Now, uh, you know, not not that you can speak for the character of Pete Drummond, played by Neil Maskell, but uh, this is a guy that has every reason to despise since in season one. So what is it about Karen that turns him so drastically? I mean, shouldn't he be angry at her for deceiving him? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I suppose love is blind. Uh, yeah, he definitely should be angry at her for deceiving him, but I think they have a, an odd connection and, uh, and and have done and did all throughout season one. So yes, he probably should be angry at her for deceiving him, but then I suppose we all have to forgive. And if you want to forgive, which I think he does, I don't want to speak for Neil, but I think so, then there are so many more possibilities beyond that. And I think that's exactly where we find them. There's, there are endless possibilities there for them to mine, like any relationship in the beginning, which is what's great about this season. I think it focuses so much on relationships. And for Pete and Karen, you could use the parallel of synth and human to anything. And they are just two people in love at the beginning of a relationship trying to figure it out and what's going to happen. Well, what's interesting is that in the first couple of episodes, it's pretty clear that Pete does still have a lot of prejudices to overcome because he makes these little insensitive comments like wondering why you care about the headboard color or whether she's ready to come back to work and pretend to be someone else. So do you feel like Karen has the need to convince him that she's just as human as humans or is she just waiting for him to come to that realization on his own? No, I think she's, she's trying to convince him that she is as human as humans, but also I think obviously Karen has never uh, had the opportunity to be what she is with Pete in this season in the sense that I'd be with a human who knows what she is, who accepts her for what she is, in that she is a synth who would like to be, who is conscious. But she's played the role of, of human for so much longer than this time with Pete in this relationship. So I think that is where Karen is most comfortable. And I suppose for Pete, again, I'm speaking for him, but <laughs> she's going back to work, so she's going to put on an act, if you will, and, and obviously that makes him uncomfortable, but that is where Karen is most comfortable. Uh, so I think it's, yeah, well, on the one hand, trying to convince him that she is human, but also be herself, which is obviously something that she doesn't know anything about, but the most her she knows is her pretending to be something she's not. Does that make sense? Totally, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, you mentioned relationships, and obviously season two so far seems to really be about that, and not just Karen and Pete, but Mia and Ed, uh, and then, of course, Laura and Joe, which I love, especially the scenes with the therapist, but because of this, there seems to be a lot of disconnected storylines, and while it's not necessarily a bad thing, can we look for Karen's story to converge with the others as it did in season one? Uh, Yes, definitely. There would be moments where people do all meet up, much like season one, where you least expect. I think that's what's great about the show as well. There are always so many twists, and, and you, I don't think you could ever predict what's coming next. Um, so yes, never say never. They may all meet up in the end. <laughs> that's great to hear. But in the meantime, we do enjoy Pete and Karen. And of course, Pete says that Karen doesn't have to pretend to be human with him. 
such as eating food, but she says she can't wait to do exactly that when they're in bed together. So with this bag rupture in episode three that we just saw, are we to understand that perhaps Karen's desire to appear real might actually be as dangerous, if not more so, than dropping the masquerade altogether? Very good. That's an excellent point. Perhaps you're absolutely right. I think like anything, when you have an overwhelming desire, as Karen does, it's it's her number one ambition and the most important thing in her life to appear to be human. So she'll kind of go to any measure and any length to, to do that and essentially to be human. And yeah, like any of us, that can be our downfall. If you're so focused on one thing, it can become negative. So yeah, getting herself in that sticky situation with the food bag may just be the beginning. Now, you, throughout season one, we were pretty oblivious to Karen's true nature, of course. But w- once she revealed herself, it, it became sort of obvious in retrospect, although that might mostly be attributed to the very sharply defined hairstyle. But <laughs> yeah. you know, if we go back and watch season one, would we be able to see certain robotic movements and are certain synth mannerisms still observable in season two? Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, that was kind of the plan in the first season. Obviously, I knew that Karen was a synth from the word go, but uh, the idea was that, that the audience would be able to go back and, and pick up on those traits. So I'm not sure exactly how much of it was left in the final edit, but uh, basically I, I was learning to be a standard synth without any consciousness and then plant little human things on top of it. So there are moments in season one, I think there's a moment where Karen's waiting in a car uh, before Peter arrives and there's very much a synth blankness to her. Um, and the whole idea of conserving energy and not wasting too much energy physically, you know, I think very often, well, all throughout season one until the reveal happens, I kind of have my hands in my pockets to keep, because obviously synths don't don't gesticulate the way we do, so that they're always hidden. So yeah, definitely you will see little little nuggets of that in the first season. And obviously then with Pete, when they're alone together in season two, she can, she can be full synth physically, but a human emotionally. So there's constantly loads of things going on with Karen, depending on what room she's in, who she's with, and what she's trying to be. Well, that's great. And it's interesting, too, when we get to see Karen with people other than Pete, it actually might indicate that you're interacting with actors that maybe you don't get to see on set very much. So were you able to be in scenes with season two that you weren't able to interact with very much on set last season? Uh, you mean with other actors who I literally didn't interact with or didn't see? Well, characters or actors, yeah. People you don't see too much in your scenes. Do you have some folks that you did get to interact with and, and have scenes with this season? Um, you know, kind of similarly to last year, kind of every, not so often really, I suppose. But it kind of feels like, it feels like I do, because we kind of always seem to be around each other. Like, I don't think I've ever ever had a scene with Ivano who plays Max but I feel like I feel like I have we must have, because there are so many characters that we always end up passing each other by you know on set or but I think actually this season again like last year we meet up in strange ways and uh, people you wouldn't expect to meet do meet so yes the short answer is yes I will see some people <laughs> <laughs> um, As I'm watching season two, for me, I couldn't help but think back to Battlestar Galactica and the Cylons. And back then, everybody wondering once they were alerted to the fact that there were Cylons on board and we don't know who is and who isn't. 
I mean, once the synth awakening is made public, which I guess we assume it's going to be sooner rather than later. I mean, do you see this evolving into a situation where everybody distrusts everybody? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Presumably, that is what would happen, and that is how it would evolve. I mean, where we are in season two, obviously, the five conscious synths that we knew in season one have had a little bit more experience and and have been the only five. So have had time to fine-tune their performances, if you will, and and blend in. But absolutely, as other conscious synths became aware of this and, and what they would have to do, yeah, everybody would be suspicious. Everybody would be looking at everybody, looking at their eyes, thinking, are they contacts? Are they just really good impressions and impersonations of humans? Yeah, inevitably, that would be presumably how it would go. Unless it was like an incredible utopian future where everybody accepted everybody. But unfortunately, <laughs> that is not human nature, unfortunately. <laughs> That's right. And so uh, in, as a result, uh, there's lots of different themes to explore. And of course, season two is off to a raring good start with that. So we really look forward to seeing more of Karen Voss in season two of Humans. And thanks so much for talking to us today about the show. You're so welcome. It was lovely. Oh, that was such a nice time talking with Ruth Bradley. What a sweetheart to discuss these things with us, especially since I think she did a great job of revealing things about the character of Karen without giving too much away and yet still satisfied some of our curiosity about where she's coming from in her dealings with Pete. Right. And, you know, I know you just said it several times, but we can't reiterate more strongly how good this show is and addresses questions that you know, as a society, we're not that far away from really having to come to terms with in terms of artificial intelligence. Oh, my gosh. They do the best job that I've ever seen. All the morality issues that would come up with regard to legal rights, uh, with regard to humans making lifestyle choices to act like synths, to the nurturing of a synth that has suddenly achieved consciousness and how to go about doing that so that they learn right from wrong. I mean, every single aspect that you could possibly think of that has been addressed in smaller form, even compared to Westworld, which is a great show. I think humans does it even better, which is really, really saying something. So very grateful that we got to talk to Ruth about the show, but boy, we got a lot going on this part of the year. So I can't wait to talk about some of the shows that are coming up. But that's it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion tonight. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in April, we're going to discuss iZombie Season 3 on The CW and something else we haven't quite decided yet. But (laughs) in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it, whether it's on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Plus, we'll be excited to share with you a bonus episode in the coming days, our interview with Nick Frost, who will be taking on a recurring role in Into the Badlands on AMC. So stay tuned for that in the coming week. Until then, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Oh,